In the fall of 2016, I was enrolled in a women and gender studies seminar about art and activism. Our conversation on dance critic Arlene Croach's essay, Discussing the Undiscussable, was heated against Croach and each other. The essay about Bill T. Jones's AIDS ballet still here wondered aloud, can you critique victim art? We argued about the label of victim art because it was 2016 and victim was a dirty word, especially in a gender studies course. We argued whether victim art even existed if Croach was just too cowardly to critique the performance. I left class feeling that Croach was wrong and that we'd been assigned the essay in order to disagree with it. When I began writing this newsletter, Kirch's critiques were still ringing in my head five years later. I can't recall much else I read that semester, some poem about a lesbian vampire from my romantics course, but Kirch managed to lodge herself in my brain, unconsciously helping me form my own theory of criticism and art. Once respected as an art in its own right, criticism is now regarded as clickbait by and for killjoys and haters. They don't build statues of critics, the anti-critics intone. The job of a critic is treated with such suspicion and disdain that even a generally positive review can send angry fans, and sometimes angry artists, on a witch hunt against critics. Stan culture has transformed the act of consuming work and being a fan of movies or music into idol worship, training one's love for a medium on a single artist. We have lost sight of the fact that criticism isn't just about the failures of art, but its merits. And that to criticize is to engage, to question, and often to love something deeply and rigorously. As a teenager, I imagined dinner parties would be replete with conversations about modern art and the French New Wave and Russian literature, that adults had intellectual conversations and sipped martinis and exchanged witty banter. In reality, at the house parties and dinners I attend, my peers and I are more often listing works we wish we understood, pursuits we dream of having time for if only we could tear ourselves away from Twitter, where all the optimism and distrust of criticism festers. Mostly, we lament that we don't read anymore. As Caleb Crane writes in The New Yorker, between 2003 and 2016, the amount of time that the average American devoted to reading for personal interest on a daily basis dropped from 0.36 hours to 0.29 hours. I doubt this data has improved even over the pandemic, when so many of us optimistically believed we'd finally finish Infinite Jest or Anna Karenina, myself included. They're in a pile along with Roots, which I've mentally labeled, well, probably never read, but makes me look smarter that I have them on the shelf. The fact that so few of us are reading and spending more time on Twitter gives way to the distrust of art and criticism and any work that challenges its audience. The internet ecosystem created in the blogging era heralded a critical climate where it's more relevant to give an old Spice Girls album a celebratory retrospective than, say, give a less-than-laudatory review of a Taylor Swift album or try to introduce your audience to an artist they haven't heard of yet. You're more likely to see someone bag, half-ironically, for Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion to be added to the Criterion collection than see someone genuinely discussing an actual Criterion film. I'm not against enjoying something lowbrow every now and then. On my letterboxd, I give both Sleepless in Seattle and Parasite four stars. I'm not a snob, I hope. But by not engaging in work that challenges us or makes us think or changes our viewpoints, we're engaging in a cultural feedback loop that closes us off intellectually and creatively. The media is full of hand-wringing about how people are in political bubbles that were polarized. How true has that become in the cultural sphere? In the, space, in the face of poptimism, criticism is out of style and out of touch because it seeks to truly evaluate the merits of a work to pull it apart and to critically engage with each element. 
Many cultural products now are celebrated for the nostalgia effect, ad nauseum reboots and remakes, or for the nods to representation they offer, however flimsy. Critics are obligated to give Lizzo a good review because she is a fat black woman and she sings positively about those identities. When critics question the unchecked positivity of her music, they're lambasted online. Criticism is seen as a personal attack rather than a response to art. Lizzo herself responded to negative criticism by tweeting that reviewers who aren't themselves musicians should be unemployed. That those who don't make music have no business critiquing it. Bashing Pitchfork, the publication Lizzo was subtweeting, is a popular, popular pastime online. Presumably because Pitchfork is one of the last places where stan culture and the PR machine doesn't have a chokehold on the masthead. Instead, Pitchfork publishes actual criticism, which is often challenging to preconceived notions of artists and their work. All art should be held to critical standards, although fans often recoil from any criticism of work they enjoy. When you only encounter criticism as a form via an out-of-context tweet, linking to a negative review of something you love, you're not likely to seek out more of it, so criticism becomes irrelevant. Literature, too, has its own kind of poptimism in the form of adult readers of young adult fiction. YA adults ardently defend their love for books written well below their reading level. This is perhaps the final boss of not engaging in work that is challenging and disguising that avoidance as progressivism. It's about representation, they insist. The classics are all about old white men. Young adult books represent queer people and people of color in positive ways. Arlene Croach calls this utilitarian art, art which exists for a social purpose. Representation, no matter how you slice it, is social, not political. And YA books, no matter how much you enjoy them, are more utilitarian than art. YA defenders almost never suggest that these books are art. They insist on their social purpose or the escape that they offer. Beach reads have their place on the shelves of bookstores, but to build your identity around young adult books... And to consume them to the exclusion of anything else, anything more challenging or edifying, is to do yourself a disservice. Recently, Yar Rosenberg wrote about the perceived critical turn against works like Hamilton, Harry Potter, and Parks and Rec in his newsletter for the Washington Post. His argument that critics should be more connected to the quote-unquote average person, rather than the niche of leftish Twitter cultural critics, is a misunderstanding of what criticism's value even is. Rosenberg is calling for critics to abandon criticism. Basically, he argues, because a book or TV show is popular, critics should throw their support behind it. Forgetting, of course, that many critics do like these works, Hamilton has a Pulitzer, Rosenberg focuses on the vocal minority that demand more rigor from both art and criticism. It's not a stretch to say that criticism is seen as a coastal thing, disconnected from the fabled middle America that so many people theorize about and few actually interact with in a meaningful way. At the heart of Rosenberg's piece is his lament that his love for broad appeal network sitcoms and Broadway musicals isn't popular among his fellow staff writers and coastal tastemakers. Perhaps what he needs, what we all need, is to separate our love for something from the critical response to it. Reading criticism of the work you love should be a clarifying experience, one that strengthens your love for it as you deepen your understanding of the work. The same way that hearing the opinion of your political adversary will strengthen your reason why you believe in what you do, so too should engaging with dissenting opinions on art deepen your understanding and appreciation. The same people who detest criticism also expect a great deal from their entertainment. 
The rise of the anti-critic sentiment seems to have emerged at the same moment as the over-reliance on media to portray politics and portray them correctly. Not only Rosenberg's beloved Parks and Rec and Hamilton, which are blatantly political, but every new series or film is telegraphed at the politics of its moment. Films like Parasite are assigned great meaning, believed to be transformative, art with a message. So when Barack Obama called it one of his favorite movies of the year, he was accused of missing the point. We believe too much in what movies can accomplish. Ronald Reagan watched Dr. Strangelove, but obviously didn't change his politics. He was just left wondering where the war room was when he arrived at the White House. The Reagans were also big fans of the 1981 film Reds, which they screened at the White House. <laughs> which they screened at the White House. Reagan's only criticism was that it didn't have a happy ending for American Communist Party leader John Reed, which seems strange in the context of like everything we know about Reagan. But our confusion about the president's affinity for such films is just our own flawed understanding of art. We ascribe a transformational power to cinema that is only available if one is open to it. If one believes in the power and sees art as something more than a consumable product or fun time, sometimes a movie is just a movie. Not getting it when someone doesn't extract the, quote, correct moral of the story is not so much a failure of art as a failure of morals and the false expectations that we place on art in the first place. It isn't the responsibility of art to teach. It isn't the responsibility of art to stop wars. As Pauline Kael writes, the movies may set styles and dress or lovemaking, they may advertise cars or beverages, but art is not examples for I imitation. That is not what a work of art does for us. Though that is what Guardians of moral Morality think art is and what they want it to be and why they think a good movie is one that sets healthy, cheerful examples of behavior, like a giant all-purpose commercial for the American way of life. In the context of the 2020s, we probably want to demand cheerful examples from our movies, but, we, but many audiences do demand that television and film inform audiences about what behavior is acceptable. If someone in a TV show says or does something racist, sexist, homophobic, etc., etc., there should be a lesson, a come-to-Jesus moment where the character learns the error of their ways. Audiences lack a kind of art literacy, perhaps because they, okay, we, resist in engaging in work outside of our cultural comfort zones. Crouch writes that we have also created an art with no power of transcendence, no way of assuring us that the grandeur of the individual spirit is more worth celebrating than the political clout of the group. The audience for Don't Look Up or Promising Young Woman does not watch those films to be transformed. They go seeking to see their own cynical views about both art and the world reified. And then when critics or the public don't fall in line, they react as if struck at the heart of their own politics. Films then become a declaration of the audience's politics, thus the confusion over Obama's appreciation of Parasite. Audience and creators alike participate in this. Adam McKay's meltdown over the online reaction to Don't Look Up, just the most recent example. As Kroch says, now the Philistines are likely to be the artists themselves. On the flip side, films like Licorice Pizza that offer a story without overt politics or morals are treated with deep suspicion by a vocal minority of the public. But the majority of movies no longer demand we engage with them on a social and psychological level. They exist only to, as Kroch writes, justify the bureaucracy's existence by being socially useful. This is true of both corporations like Netflix and smaller scale arts organizations like Croach was writing about, which rely on grants to sustain their creation. Grants demand social relevance from art, which artists must then engage in to stay afloat and on we go. The issue seems to reappear in culture every 10 or 15 years. The panic about rap music and violence in films in the 80s, the fear of Marilyn Manson and video games in the wake of Columbine, and now the moral panic born out of the Trump era 
where anything that doesn't promote the correct politics is suspicious, even fascist. Like violent crime and school shootings, we're responding to social and political fear with culture. We can look back and laugh at the fact that authors and booksellers and comedians were ever put on trial for saying bad words or writing about sex. But because we are fighting our political wars via cultural products, we're in the next phase of the exact same project, moving obscenity trials from the courtroom to social media. As Kale wrote in 1967, people see Bonnie and Clyde as a danger to public morality. They think an audience goes to a play or movie and takes the actions in it as examples for imitation. They look at the world and blame the movies. If art is not sufficiently liberal in its execution, then we can blame the ills of the country on art, rather than on the politicians, the populace, wherever the problems actually reside, wherever the rot is. Croach wrote that the 60s were about creating your own rules, the 80s were about getting grants. The 2010s were about scripting gifable moments. What will the 2020s legacy in art and culture be?